Hello, and welcome back to our new podcast show, Breakfast with Minerals. In this series, we'll be sitting down with key influencers in the mineral collecting world to discuss different topics that affect us as a community, all while we're having breakfast. Hence the name of the show. Breakfast with Minerals is a three-way joint venture project that's brought to you courtesy of Blue Cat Productions, the Tucson and Denver Fine Mineral Show, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC. Our goal here is to bring these discussions to you, our listening audience, in the hopes that these episodes will spark continuing discussions online via our section on the Fabre Mineral Forum site, so we can all share our voices and thoughts. New episodes of Breakfast with Minerals will be recorded at the Tucson Fine Mineral Show, aka the Westward Look Show, and at the Denver Fine Mineral Show, and will be released shortly thereafter. If you have any thoughts or ideas on topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please drop us a line at topics at breakfastwithminerals.com. And with that, let's get started with episode three of Breakfast with Minerals. In this episode, recorded at the 2018 Fine Mineral Show Denver, show hosts Gail and Jim Spann sit down with Crystal Doris, Rick Kennedy, Tom Preshkir, Jeff Swanger, Rod Tyson, and James Zigris all of whom have at least one thing in common. They're all professional miners. We're going to have them all talk about their experiences in mining and collecting, the most critical part of bringing mineral specimens to you. Now, before we get into the discussion, here's a little bit about each participant. Show hosts Gail and Jim Spann are a Dallas-based husband and wife collecting team who have only been collecting for 13 years, but have managed to build one of the top mineral collections in the United States. Their collection, consisting of over 12,000 mineral specimens, and their eagerness to share has earned them the respect of the mineral collecting community. Gail Spann also serves on the board for the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas, the Northwest Rice Museum of Rocks and Minerals in Portland, Oregon, and chairs the board of the Mineralogical Record. Gail and Jim also serve on the Mineral Advisory Board of the Peabody Museum at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and the board of the Hudson Institute of Mineralogy, doing business as Mindat.org. Guest number one is none other than Crystal Doris. Now, if Crystal Doris's voice sounds familiar to you, it might be because you've heard or maybe seen her on the Prospector's television show. A 2009 graduate of the University of Wyoming, Crystal was introduced to minerals and gemstones at an early age by her father, Joseph Doris, of Pinnacle 5 Minerals in Manitou Springs, Colorado. Crystal has spent over 29 years in the Colorado mountains with her family, digging Amazonite, smoky quartz, and topaz, and has developed an extensive knowledge of minerals and mineral extraction. Over the past seven years, Crystal has also developed her skills in jewelry design and metalsmithing, as well as becoming part owner of Pinnacle 5 Minerals. In 2018, Crystal married sweetheart Matt Dinkle, who is now also involved in the family business, focusing on marketing and photography in his spare time. Also with us today is Rick Kennedy. As a young lad of only seven years old, Rick was first introduced to the world of rocks and minerals by a family friend back in Dayton, Ohio. His introduction to fossils, pyrite, and calcite specimens eventually led him to earn a Bachelor of Science degree in Earth Sciences from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1986, and his life just took off from there. While having started his company, Earth's Treasures, while still in school, it wasn't until 2005 when it became a full-time endeavor. 
this lifelong field collector can now be found uncovering treasures at the California Blue Mine, Hallelujah Junction, and most recently, the Jackson's Crossroads Amethyst Mine. Tom Prushgear is also with us today. Tom not only talks the talk, he walks the walk. In Poland, his globe-trotting resume started when he was five years old, collecting fossils in Warsaw. Since then, he's been an incredibly prolific field collector, looking for minerals in Morocco, Madagascar, Mongolia, India, Bulgaria, Romania, Spain, Russia, Norway, and the Ukraine. Just to name a few. Phew. Tom is also the president of Spirifer Minerals, LLC, that exhibits at all the major mineral shows, as well as being the author and sometimes publisher of numerous magazines, books, talks, and articles. And when he's not doing that, Tom is also busy as the president of the NGO Spirifer Geological Society and running the biggest mineral show in Poland. When it comes to historic gem mining in America, one of the most famous localities is in the Pala region of North San Diego County, California. Today, only one operating gem mine remains in this area, reflecting the glory of days gone by. This mine is the Ocean View Mine, and that mine is run by none other than our next guest, Jeff Swanger. Jeff has been involved in the gem mining business for over 35 years, bringing fine gem and mineral specimens to the market. In addition to running his crew of miners, Jeff also operates a pay-to-dig operation here, an on-site cabin for weekend stays, and more recently also acquired the adjoining Paula Chief Mine. When it comes to walking in the footsteps of giants, Rod Tyson has lived the classic mineral life that most collectors only dream of living. Growing up in Ontario, Canada, his interest in minerals started with family, continued with teachers, and was forever written in stone by his marriage to Helen, a fellow fossil and mineral collector. This part-time dealer evolved into a Tucson tailgater, who then became a Desert Inn dealer, then Munich, then Denver, then the TGMS. Tyson's Fine Minerals Incorporated was becoming a major player, and Rod's encyclopedic knowledge of Yukon minerals was becoming world-renowned. In 2018, Rod was presented with the prestigious American Mineral Heritage Award by the Mineralogical Record, recognizing his contributions to the mineral collecting world through field collecting. Our final guest for this episode is James Zegris, an American collector who also happens to be the president and owner of Avant Mining LLC, the world's largest crystal mining company, with assets that include over 11,400 acres of land in Arkansas that is home to 22 different mines. James is the proud owner of several prominent collections, including the most important private collection of amber ever assembled, the finest collection of Mont St. Hilaire minerals outside of Canada, and he even has a mineral named after him, Zegrasite. So that's our lineup for today. Now, let's join our guests as we listen to professional diggers and the stories they have to tell. Gail, Jim, take it away. Um, today, we're going to talk about the stories and experiences of the professional miners and field collectors, of which you all are. Otherwise so, known as the diggers. The diggers. <laughs> but I, I really love the stories, and I know Jim and I both enjoy so much when we hear about the crazy stories and the funny stories and the people who are actively involved. So I thought, Jeff, that you, if you have any interesting stories, you might be able to relay something to all of us. Oh, I have many, Gail, but one I'll, I'll start with is uh, a few years ago when we hit our coon site find 
we were in a zone about 100 feet long, and everywhere we drilled, we hit pockets everywhere. We couldn't even find a place to put a hole sometimes. And so we didn't want to shoot them. You know, so we'd shoot, we'd drill, try to find a place where we could put a hole and shoot it. And it was just coon sight, coon sight, coon sight. So one, one day we drilled a hole and it plunged all the way to the chuck of the truck, of the, of the drill, just all the way in. So we knew we had something, you know, at least four feet, at least four feet by four feet. So we, we drilled around that pocket and we shot it. And when we went back in there, I'll never forget this. There were, it, it was like a fried egg. We, it, it was textbook blasting. You couldn't, it'll never happen again. We shot the whole top of the pocket off and it, the, the rubble was just laying right here. And there was a big, like a yolk of an egg. It's like four feet across and maybe eight feet that way. And, and so it was look, looked like a yolk of an egg and all over the ground there were kunzite crystals that were in balls of clay, some quite large, all different sizes and all of them in pristine condition. It was like we had no dance, and, and so when we got when we got on that like the what I'll say the yolk of the egg, we just started taking our hands and just peeling back with our bare hands big chunks of clay, and some of them wouldn't even fit in a bucket. And some you know we tried to break them in <laughs> that size, and we'd get them, we'd put them in a bucket, and next we'd do another one. So we just dug it with our hands. That oh, that wow. one that'll never happen again. I'm sure where, where it was just. Uh, and that was a substantial find. There was like a ton of kunzite in that find, and and then we just shot it away, and there just and picked up some of it right off right off the mud pile. What kind of celebration? What kind of feeling you have when you open up something like that? Well, we knew we had found historical find there, you know, that rivaled anything from the district. I knew immediately that what I saw. So um, that it hadn't been found if ever, or at least 120 years, you know, back to historical uh, times. Well, I have a question. What color were they when you found them? It's hard. They were. They appear some of them clear because usually you see them on the A or the B axis, and they're covered with mud. So at first it's kind of difficult. And as the guys started rinsing some of them off, we had a hose there, and they started rinsing some of them off. Boy, they started. They started coming up to me with the crystal, with the light under the crystal, and we were like, "Oh man, we had the most unbelievable color." But that pocket is so easy to dig. We just shot it. We just blasted it away like. Uh, like we knew what we were doing, you know. And do you have? Do you still have some of those pieces that you? Yeah, we still have. Yeah, I showed you one of them earlier. Yeah, we still have some of those pieces. I wondered. Yeah. That was just a fantastic because usually we're in precarious positions digging, and you, a lot more damage occurs if you're reaching in something or you know something like that. But to literally, just shoot the top right off of it and just leave the pocket hang sitting wow. right there. That was that'll probably never happen again. And when you find something like that. How many, how many times do you say, oh, I'm going to get another one? I'm going to just have to reach for Oh, all the time. Get another when one. we found that, I mean, my wife's like, are you happy now? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if you know how I roll. <laughs> of course I'm happy, but it's, are you asking me if we're going to quit mining? And no, I don't think so. <laughs> that was, uh, we, had, we still went on for many more years. And then we uh, we're still, we went down below that in the last couple years. And uh, then we got flooded. Couple years ago, so we got dewatered. We're all back together. We're got five headings going. We're going to see what happens. But, uh, and what mine was this? Ocean View. Fantastic. But I'm turning sixty in two weeks, and I'm thinking, she's like, "Hey, are you going to take it easier?" But Emshaw won't let me. Emshaw <laughs> won't let me. I'm like, "Hey, this is, I want this to be a part-time thing for now. I want to go fishing. I want to go travel." No, Emshaw's like full time. They're like, so it's, I'm having trouble. Coping with that, it's either like I, I'm all in or I'm all out. Uh -huh. There's no, 
no, middle man, hard time. Yeah, I can't find a, a way to um, satisfy them. But you know, if you're not there, they're gonna either they're gonna start writing tickets if you're not taking care of things, you know. And uh, even though it's silly stuff, but uh, can that be resolved with a partner, somebody who's there when you're not? Yeah, that's what it's gonna take. Yeah. That's what it's gonna. Yeah, and somebody I'm definitely open to that inside. in the next. Uh, you know, so when that when the right partner partner can be a nightmare, as you know, mm -hmm. we've all had that. Mm -hmm. Or if you get one that comes mm -hmm. out approaches it like you do, then it can be a godsend. Right. You know, with the same passion and honesty that you have, and the, the, you know they got skin in the game and all that. So when that partner presents himself, yeah, yeah. Rod, do you have any interesting stories to share with us? Wow. I do, but I'm just fascinated by that. I was thinking if you were in the juniors game, you'd have left the fried egg pocket where it was, taken a picture of it, gone and sold your stock or your company, and <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Listed on so. Vancouver and be done with it. <laughs> well, you know. Now you got to see what the next that's, one is, right? <laughs> well, that's where we get into trouble. Exactly. And so. I'm sure not everything is is as glorious as that. There are just as many, you know, disappointments in the world. So oh, certainly. When like, people ask why things cost what they do, it's like those the, moments. The aren't. miners don't get with rare no. exception. Certain deposits, pegmentites are like labor of love and you know don't you're going to find stuff but it's so expensive to run the mine mm. now because we're down so deep and we have to have a, quite an extensive fleet of heavy equipment and ventilation is a problem we have to giant uh, trailer mount diesel fans that blow air in the mine and, mm -hmm. and all this has to be calculated and uh, you know we have to keep an eye on the ventilation plan and it's it's so onerous that I, you know, as long as I'm in I mean I'm in you know and Unless I have the right partner that's going to take care of things, and then. All right, we're going to have to put out a help wanted <laughs> ad for you, Rick. You're not so much underground. You're you're doing a little more hanging off of cliff faces and whatnot. A, a little bit of that, and um, you know, at Hallelujah, we're we're open pit. But when I was I was listening to Jeff, I was reminded of something that happened many many years ago before equipment was involved. Um, basically, like many of us, I've been picking at rocks ever since I was eight, nine, ten years old. And many, many years ago, my friend and I had discovered a deposit in a road cut on a uh, highway in the gold country of California. And we got up early one Saturday morning and we were following around and we found this interesting pocket zone that had albite crystals and quartz crystals and a lot of green chloride all over the place. It was really, really, really fun clay. Although I will say, Jeff's clay is the best. <laughs> of all the pocket clay I've ever dealt with, yours is wonderful. It's sticky, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's so good. So we're having a great time. We're digging stuff. We're putting chloride all over us. and. <laughs> After about two hours, the CHP rolls up. And my two friends look over and say, Rick, you're on. Because I am the diplomat of our group. And I'm like, good morning, officer. And he's like, good morning. I'm like, let me guess. We shouldn't be here, should we? He starts laughing and he's like, nope. And I said, you know, an explanation would be lovely. And he said, well, Caltrans... Uh, they maintain the roads here, and if you r knock rocks down while you're doing things, they have to come and fix it, so they don't want anybody doing that. And I said, totally understand, officer. We will take off. And he said, he was really nice. He's like, 
gather up, wrap your stuff. I know you guys don't have lots of places where you can go dig. You know, where are you parked? I'm like, I'm up here. So I walked over with him and we talked about some stuff. And then I got in my car to go around and pick up my friends in the rocks. And we said goodbye. He took off. As I checked my side view mirror to make sure it was safe to come out, my face was still covered with chlorite war paint. <laughs> and he handled me with a straight face the entire way. It remains one of my favorite moments. You know, there are women who pay good money for that kind of play on their faces. <laughs> war paint. Yes, yes. Rod, any great stories about mm. digging? I think most people are interested in how many bugs there are where we go most of the time. So, uh, <laughs> well, bugs and barren land grizzly bears, that's what most people yes. think of. But, <laughs> so, you know, um, but I did do a project in the central Yukon in the mid 90s, and my lead climber, who's a gem cutter in Canada by the name of Brad Wilson, talked me into doing a thousand foot single line rappel. Oh. <laughs> And I'd never done knots on rappel. When we were done, he said, maybe we should have practiced that one. <laughs> the first knot took me an hour and a half with my toe about this far away from my nose. <sighs> and I haven't done that since I was a baby. So it was a very difficult experience in trying to figure out how to get your hardware around a knot. If you've never done it, it's a little tricky, particularly on, on a long line for the first stretch. So. That was entertaining, but I'm still here. Were you married at the time? Yes. And what did she think about that? <laughs> My wife has never worried about any of the things that I do. You know, uh, she knows that uh, if I'm going to do it, I will do it as safely as possible. Some people would think attempting a thousand foot single line rappel, like most of my crew said, nope. You're on. That's it. That's <laughs> it's not us. But most you know. people don't think of strollers in uh, North America. Never mind in, uh, in Canada. Yeah. So that, uh, that that's a very different uh, uh, orientation from from yeah. the Alps. And, and the we were looking for aquamarine. There's huge myrolytic cavities in this area. It's just so remote. It's too expensive. Yeah. You know. It's uh, and increasingly that's our issue in the north in Canada. Mm -hmm. The last project I did at Rapid Creek. Uh, I spent 35 grand on a helicopter for two weeks, and that was not doing very much. Yeah, they're on four-hour minimums right now out of a Nuvik, uh, 2,500 uh, or so a wet an hour. So, you know, wow, adds yeah. up quick. It adds up in a hurry. Crystal, you've been growing up in the the mines and with your family actively digging. What? Uh, what kind of experiences really jump out in your mind from, from the many different mines your family's been involved with? Well, uh, Jim, I think I could think of the first time I found my first smoky quartz. Uh, I was about six years old, and it was very interesting because my dad has been taking my brothers and I up to our claiming area in the Crystal Peak Mining District um, since we were in backpacks basically. And so he would have one of us on his back and then the others would be, you know, walking next to each other, going to a hole and started to dig. And we had this dog named Boomer at the time. And uh, my brothers were really good at finding pockets. They're older than me. You know, Tim would have been at the time eight and Scott would have been probably 11. And so they're digging and they're finding, you know, 
crystals and I'm getting so frustrated because I can't find anything and I'm, I'm like why am I not good at this these guys are great at this and I'm terrible and all of a sudden I look over and our dog Boomer is uncovering a pocket of crystals <laughs> and I was like even the dog found a crystal before I did and so shortly after that my dad set me up uh, in a cavity area so I started digging and I was able to get my first smoky quartz which do I you, still have. Do you still? Oh I was going to say do you still yes. have it. Yeah I do. With an assist from Boomer. Yes with an assist from Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. With some of the uh, I'm not sure what that signal was but uh, with some of the many activities you've had on television and, and otherwise are there particular scenes or uh, uh, the blasting scenes and things of that sort that uh, have some behind-the-scenes stories you'd care to share with us? So, the last blasting scene that we had was pretty interesting because the timer was off on the cameras that were rolling. Mm. Uh, it was off about a minute from the actual blast. And so, which is very scary. The blast, our blaster had everything laid out perfectly fine. Everything was great. So the timer was great there, but the cameras were off by one minute. So they're sitting here and they're, you know, in their spaces. They went down the hill and we went up the hill of the Smoky Hawk so we could get a better viewpoint. So you had cameras at the top and cameras at the bottom. And, you know, we're sitting there and we're looking and waiting for the blast. And they're doing their one minute countdown. And, you know, all of a sudden just goes boom. And it threw like two of the cameramen back. And all of a sudden you just hear all of us swearing because we did not expect that to happen at all. And it just, there's like so much debris everywhere. And uh, it was one of those moments where you realized even though you tried to get everything on the same page with the cameramen and the producers and the blasters and our mining, it can always go a very, very different way than you expect. Yeah, that can that can be pretty dangerous uh, as well. So yes, we those sorts of things. Yes, it can. I was a little afraid. I think. I mean, we've been in many instances where we've had blasts where they've gotten a little bit too close for comfort. Hmm. So we try very hard to make sure that all of us are protected or anyone who's out there during that time. That's good. James, I, I don't think you're involved with blasting with, with the, the fabulous quartz mines you have these days, but I might be wrong on that. No, we, we, do, we, do, we do blasting up Are there. You? Yeah, we, we have um, several, at any given time, we usually have one or one to two tons of uh, explosives on site. Right? It goes quick, doesn't it? It goes quick. <laughs> we, have, we have large magazines, and, and right now we're blasting behind the crystal vortex pocket, which you guys have seen, which is about a 100-foot-long pocket and is probably the largest pocket of high-quality quartz ever found. It's produced over 20 tons of material. And um, wow. some, of the challenging, <laughs> some of the challenging stories I have, I, you know, I think about what, what, what Jeff was saying. And, and um, you know, I was at a point where MSHA came in. I think the one common thing we all share here are the, ch the challenges of mining, whether it's Rod talking with helicopters, because dealing with helicopters now in Vesper Peak, but at this particular pocket in Arkansas, the crystal vor the, the vortex pocket, MSHA came in and said, if you do any more mining in this pocket, we're going to bill you as an underground mine. So, so you have to open this whole area up. And, and, that, and they're like, you don't want that. And, you know, Jeff will talk about all the problems of why you don't want to, why you want to be an open pit mine versus an underground. Wow. And so that's why, that's why I have so many explosives is because mm. we're blast, currently blasting, taking the mountain down behind it because we're removing a 10 meter, 20 foot, about a 20 foot section of the wall for the American Museum of Natural History for a pocket called the Crystalline Pass, which is going to have about 
10 tons of material in it. Wow. And it's going to be at the entrance of the new Gem Mineral Hall there. That's great. Congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. You got some great stuff there, James. That's, yeah. a, that's a fun part of fun part of the projects when you get to do museum work like that. So you're trying to keep it all together. I'm so trying to keep original, or I'm trying to keep this one section of the wall that's about 20 feet. You know, like I said, about 10 meters, or try to extract it in a few pieces and just transfer that to the museum and leave it the way it is with the clay and everything there. So that's great, Tomac. You are not on the United States continent when you were digging, so tell us about your experience. I think it's worth to mention that each of us is digging in a little bit different environment. A lot of things in our activity depends on geology. We've got pegmatites, we've got some metasomatic rocks, we've got quartz veins or different geology which needs different style of mining. <clears throat> you guys in USA, you are in a very lucky situation because in US it's probably the only one place I know where you can do that properly and completely legally. In Europe it's almost impossible to get a small claim and make a mining like that because the requirements are exactly the same when you open the giant mine for 20,000 miners. So you can never afford that because it's so expensive. There is only one mine operating in Europe, it's Rogerly, which operates only because it's already operated for 20 years. And uh, to open new mine like that, it's almost impossible. And my activities concentrated on countries mostly in Africa and Asia, and it's very different style of mining. We cannot use explosives there, at least not legally. And uh, <clears throat> we have to use very different techniques. One of my most interesting experiences was very early experience in the 90s, late 90s. I was in Madagascar, I was still working in the University Geology Department, and we were sleeping in the jungle, in the tents, and in the morning we heard some noise, some rocks, breaking some rocks. So my friend Christoph, who was with me, went there and uh, to the bushes and came back in 10 minutes. Hey, there is a basalt quarry here. Let's go to check it. So we went to this basalt quarry and it showed up. It's a quarry operated by local people, very poor people, <coughs> almost naked working there without any machinery, uh, mining basalt only with hand tools. <clears throat> the kids were breaking the rock to small parts, uh, produced the road gravel, which is in our countries you produce by hundreds of tons, and they then daily can produce, I don't know, maybe 10 kilo, 20 kilo. It was just crazy to see that. So we entered to this quarry. Of course, basalt is super hard rock, and we start to wander around, and we start to find steelbite, apophyllite, very similar mineralization to India, because this part of Madagascar was uh, the same geological area with India before they split it. So this is the same type of basalts. And going farther and farther, we start to find calcites. And we see, ah, oh, these calcites are beautiful, amber color, good luster, beautiful twinning, but they were all broken up because they fall down from some place. Then suddenly we realize above us there is a huge pocket, just open pocket in the quarry face. So it was very dangerous, but we climbed there and <laughs> it was like four meters above the ground. We climbed there with our hand tools with Christoph and we start to mine. We start to find incredible specimens. These were the best specimens I ever mined with my hands. So <clears throat> we were mining for hour, two, three. Then night came. We were mining all night using our lamps. <laughs> In the morning, these Malagasy people who are super poor, really super poor people, they see us there like crazy working all day, all night, 
And at some point during the day, there was a small group which came to us. And one guy climbed to us and brought us a food and water because he was thinking we are so poor. We have to work nonstop. We have no food. And we were just we were just so crazy about this calcite. We were working there like 36 hours when we went down to the tents. I will not tell you the details, but we've got a lot of health problems after that. But this day, these days, three, during three days, we mined, I don't know, like probably 500 kilos of specimens. And you probably know these calcites. These are these extremely twinned calcites from mm, Madagascar yeah. in Sambava area. So this was quite a funny mm. experience. Who were you with? I was with my friends from the university, uh, from Spirifer Geological Society. Mm. We were making research in northern Madagascar. How fun. I bet that has to be very interesting for um, you to be in these areas where you see people so poor that are mining all the time, Tomic. Like, it has to really bring it forward to you because we always talk about the expense that we have with the mining and the rules and the regulations we have to follow. But when you put it in, I guess, real world terms, seeing people who are just working day in and day out and barely have a shirt on their back. It has to be very humbling. That's true, but you would be surprised. These people, for example, they were mining basalt, which is super inexpensive road construction mm. material. But if you move to central Madagascar, when they are digging turmalines, you will see people also, you would see these people do not have even clothes, their houses fall apart. Then you go and ask, hey, how much is this tourmaline? Oh, this tourmaline is $50,000. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They are very surprised. <laughs> and then they pile their money in, under their bed. They don't use the banks. It's mm. it's interesting experience. Sometimes the prices in the countries like, I don't know, India, Madagascar, um, China, are more expensive than you would expect. And uh, some activities are much cheaper of course because this basalt quarry which is example we were just digging there for free at the end we paid them something we left them equipment etc uh, but uh, if you do the projects like Roddu and I do, for example, in Northern Norway, where you use helicopters, equipment. This is very, very expensive. Even you don't use the heavy machines and you don't use the blasting. These are very, very expensive uh, projects. Maybe if we uh, uh, extrapolate that last point, um, the, the cost of mining, and you don't find something really appealing and commercial every time you go out, right? Uh, so there is my other observation. Uh, for me to find the places where we dig, like we do in Morocco and other places, is you have to take maybe 50 trips to find one place like that. And every trip, it's thousands of dollars. You have to fly there, stay there, make a research. It's not like you just go and you find these beautiful things. You spend years to find a place where then you can invest money building some small infrastructure and go there for mining. Gail and I have been spoiled rotten in that respect. After you all have found these fabulous pockets, then you bring us in and say, here, dig at this spot right here. <laughs> it's, it's not always like that, is it? Definitely not. It is. Not all the days you weren't there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you all protect your claims? How do you stop people from coming in and just doing what they want to do? That's a hard one. Uh, we actually run into the issue of claim jumpers all the time. Uh, we probably have a group of 10 people that are 
in the area of our claims, in the area of our friend George Quist's claims right now, and they continue to dig on the area over and over again, even though we've gone and filled their holes up. Uh, they think it's their claim, and they've been warned by the Bureau of Land Management. They've actually been you know, told by the Forest Service and the sheriff they're not allowed to be there, and they don't care. So um, we run into some really frustrating situations because it would be great if you could be out there all the time. But we live about an hour, hour and a half away from our claims in Colorado Springs. So um, you, we camp as much as we can, but at the same time, people are very savvy and they wait for you to leave and they come in and they will try and get into a pocket that you were digging. I guess the best thing we can do to protect ourselves is just put a lot of dirt on top of it. <laughs> and, and that's it. It sounds so silly, but that's it. You, that's the you, best way for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Because we are open pit and we have to make sure uh -huh. that there's 20, 30 feet of dirt on top right. of something so you can't hand dig down to the structure that we're leaving. Amazing. Rick? Um, we are two different mines that we mainly work. We have completely different ways. Hallelujah Junction is probably the single most high graded spot on in the United States because it is so open. If you can walk up the mountain or drive up that crazy road, <laughs> you're right there. And like what you say, we, we tend to bury it. Uh, the other thing that we've done in the last couple of years is we've tried to make it really, really cheap for people to fee dig. That helps a lot. Yeah. Fine. 25 bucks a day, they can keep anything they want, and they can go up there with a clean conscience and something in writing that says it's okay that they're there. Now, at Jackson's Crossroads, nature has solved that problem for us. <laughs> we are deep enough, and we are so far below the, um, the waterline that... Lake Ledford forms every time we leave, and so all of the virgin material is protected, and you'd have to be diving in solid mud to get at it. So mm -hmm. it's pretty that's much a good okay. way. That's yeah. a good point. We actually do the same thing. We don't do fee digs. Um, we open our claims up, the Topaz claim, uh, which is a little bit further, probably about 40, 40 minutes away from uh, where we dig our Amazonites and Smoky Quartz. We open the claims up a lot to the general public and especially to mineral clubs because we want people to have the opportunity to come up there and see the structure and be able to dig and know that we want them to understand the geology and be able to take home something that they found. And I think that's maybe what makes the claim jumping more frustrating is that we're really nice people. Right. <laughs> like, we want you to be able to have that experience. We okay. love getting into a pocket and pulling pieces out. And we're not somebody, or we're not a group. My family doesn't want to stop you from learning about this beautiful area in Colorado. We want to encourage you. Um, so I think something that I would suggest advice-wise to most people who are getting into our industry would be to Talk to people, ask people. It doesn't hurt to ask people if you can go to their claims. And depending on when people who own the claims or your mines are up there, I mean, they'll do everything they can to possibly get you out there. We, we want you to enjoy it too. Sure. Insurance-wise, 
We take as many precautions as we can. Since we are open pit, we put a lot of areas up where we, um, we kind of X them off where people can't go. Everybody has to sign a liability release form because unfortunately, uh, sometimes things do happen and we don't want to be held responsible for God forbid you slip and break your ankle. I surely hope you don't, but it is an active mining claim and right. things can happen. Uh, we never blast with any visitors that are there or anything like that, um, which is good. Right. So we take a lot of precautions, but at the same time, it is hard because you sit there and you are putting yourself up to potentially be sued if an injury does happen or something does happen that you know was not planned and that can be hard. You're working with large equipment too. Exactly. And around and these big steel buckets right. coming by. If you're not accustomed to looking for that sort of and thing, you're just setting yourself up for a problem. Listen to you. Yeah. They don't listen <laughs> they to you. They get excited. They get so excited. They want to get in the pit, and and we explain to them, you know, if you're ever going to get into the pit, we're going to let you down at a certain time. You're going to be wearing the proper equipment: hard hats, steel-toed boots, um, a vest that people can, you know, we can see. Put your earplugs in. Stay where we tell you to stay. And then when it's ready and the machine has stopped, come on down and we'll show you the pocket structure that we're in. Um, but you, I mean, sometimes they just don't listen and, no. and it's really, it can be so dangerous. Keep them away. That's yeah. when the voice comes out. Yeah. <laughs> and Rick, you do have the voice. Stern one. We have, an ex we have an advantage being underground in that regard. Yeah. We yeah. got locks, we got steel doors that we can lock. I got an American bulldog when I live right on top of the hill. So and my bulldog is so nothing to be messed there's with. There's two bulldogs, you, she, you, you and your dog. Yeah, she'll go after them. Go after them. And then even the next layer of defense for us is, you know, when we're tunneling, we, we hit these pockets in the floor and in the wall right in front of us. Well, I'll just park a bobcat right, right down in there and just shove the bucket up in the pocket if I have to. So they couldn't. There's nowhere to stand and dig it. They, they can't really even get to it. So with those with those three things, I don't. And when I opened the feed dig, that really helped a lot to the surface. Keep running around on the surface. Now they don't have to sneak, and mm -hmm. it helped a lot. Plus, it gives you some funds to mine with. It's a win-win. The public awareness of it. I have, th I have thousands of people. I've been doing it 20 years. We've had literally tens of thousands, hundred thousands of people through there. And many of which I see in Tucson. Ten, hey, ten years ago I came to your mine, and I got bitten by the bug, and I went to Colorado School of Mines, and now I'm a mine geologist. And so I, I get stopped all the time like yeah. that, and that it, makes it, it all does, worthwhile. You does know? trigger right. the science interest, <laughs> Rod? Um, over the years, uh, mining laws have changed. How has that affected uh, your activities? Uh, 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 I think, like anybody. Anything that you try to do that's serious requires a lot more permitting than it used to. <clears throat> in the good old days, we could transport explosives province to province. It was frowned on, but it wasn't unless you went to Quebec. It wasn't really a problem, but you no, wouldn't you wouldn't even dream of doing that anymore. And and of course, you have to have magazine license, portable magazine, magazine on site, all that kind of rules and regulations. You know, we used to just have Foresight 40 in the back of the truck whenever we needed it, yeah. you know. Oh, that, do you have limitations on, on how many people can be on site uh, whenever you're, you're doing it? Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of regulations like 
like that too. Just this pretty much from what I hear listening to people down here, different provinces are a little more ridiculous about that than others, but British Columbia, for instance, is pretty tough. I, I was, you know, when I moved to Nova Scotia, I went back to work after 27 years as a professional geologist, and that was kind of entertaining in itself, but I moved a drill site from a proposed drill site because of the results of what I was seeing on the road we were cutting, and I moved it to a non-permitted drill site because it's a drilling program. We're spending $7 million. It's happening now. I don't have time to go and ask somebody in an office in Kamloops for a permit. So I just did it. And then we filed an amendment. But that could have been rough. I figured we'd get away with it. But we didn't have a license to cut timber up there. Um, so a couple of big trees just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, you know, we have uh, probably every bit as many regulations as you do down here, too. Uh, you know, if you're going to do something serious, most of the, you know, you talk about problems you have with people coming onto your claims. Most of the places we work are so remote that, you know, fill your boots. James, you you've worked, you're, you're working in an area that had been mined for, for if not centuries, certainly many decades prior to your involvement. And was there a regulatory change? Uh, I'm not certain, not so much change as regulations, but uh, rules and requirements that you had to deal with to well, get up to standard? Well, interestingly, when I first got involved, um, I had mineral rights and opened up a mine that it's the oldest crystal mine in Arkansas, Hamilton Hill Mine, which is where. Uh, Gail's pocket was found two years. Was it a year ago, a year and a half ago in Gail? It was about a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, and it's the oldest crystal mine, named crystal mine in America that I know of. Started in 1865 wow. um, uh, for a quartz crystal mine. And still producing. And still, still producing when we're, when we're there. But what's interestingly, I, I, interesting, I didn't own the surface rights. Um, I just owned the mineral rights. And the timber company in America, the way it works is, if you own the mineral rights, that trumps surface rights. Mm -hmm. However, this company was a multi-billion dollar timber company and they said, you're going to pay us $30,000 an acre. And I said, no, I'm not going to pay you $30,000. And it turned into a lawsuit where they hit me with this this, Arkans, this land, uh, open cut land reclamation act, which, which had never been enforced in the quartz crystal mining business. Well, they started to enforce it. And everyone got really upset at me in the business because um, we got Rocking this letter that said you have to do this insane, you, we now have to uh, adhere to these insane mining regulations. And I read this permit, it was just unbelievably difficult to deal with. And I thought, oh my God, this is insane. So I went to the regulatory agency in, in Little Rock before this went to court, and I said, well, wait a minute, you guys want $10,000 an acre bond? That's like a coal mine. What, what about these giant quarries in Little Rock? that you can see from outer space, essentially, the 3M quarries and the Martin Marietta. Oh, well, they're the large quarry companies, you know, so they have a lobby and they're exempt. And I thought, so you're telling me that if I have a lobbyist, I could get exempt too, and they just sort of smiled at me. And, and I thought, well, that's strange, so that's what I did. Um, except I worked through some senators and some congressmen I knew and to get an exemption to this insanely difficult law. It's literally, 
it was as difficult as mining in Cal like California is probably the most difficult state to mine in terms of rate. So it was like being in California, but Arkansas is not like that. Right. It's a very pro-business state. So I thought, where did this come from? And so I, so I worked with these senators and these congressmen, and I finally figured out what happened. Um, they said, James, you will get exempt. You, you'll be fine. They will be, you'll be exempted from this law. But the law was written by the quarry companies, specifically Martin Marietta, because what happens was when these big highway contracts come up for bid, three, four hundred million dollar contracts, the mom and pop quarries on the side of the road would pop up and underbid the big players. So they wrote the most environmentally difficult mining law you've ever seen in your life to monopolize the stone business, mm. the quarry business. And so things are not always as they appear. So I mean, it, it seemed like it was like being in California, it was a super environmentalist law. And in fact, it was written by the mining companies that didn't want anyone to compete with right. them. So they looked at my exemption. They said, well, he's mining quartz crystals. Specifically says mining quartz crystals on private property. So they said, You're, we're, we're not going to mess with you. But so, some, so you deal with these interesting challenges sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you find out the way lobbying works in America. And, and if I wouldn't have worked with these congressmen and these senators that I worked with, it would have cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars, because I did meet initially with a lobbyist. And he said, okay, right, 30,000 of this guy, and 20,000 of this guy, and 10,000 of this guy, and 20,000. And I was like, oh man, this, this is pretty tough. So luckily I was able to do it for free because of some good people I work with. But and it of was, course he's saying, and write 100,000 to me is your best <laughs> in the six of them. Well, the good news is you let me pluck out my first piece from the Gale's pocket, and yes. that, was, yeah. that was sensational. It's, Thank you. Well, and, and we eventually resolved it, and I was able to purchase the surface, and, and now it's, a, it's an act of mine. But, you know, get, get, I, I think I want to make a quick, interesting point on security. Um, because I think I have the worst security problem out of anyone here being on almost 10,000 acres of property and 30 mining properties there. We have, what, what the thing we do is I have two full-time security people and over 100 game cameras, so and we, we monitor all 100 cameras. And so we think we mostly sleep black bears. That's just generally yeah. what we find on our claims. And, Those darn uh, black bears <laughs> always claim jumping. Yes, so we have lots of black bears, and luckily I don't have problems because in a small community or in actually any community, people talk amongst each other, and when they find out you take security seriously and you have full-time, you know, armed security and cameras everywhere. So amazingly, I haven't had many problems of, of claim jumpers. That's great. Tomek, after a comment about how difficult it is to mine in, in uh, Europe proper, are, are any mines active outside of the Alps for, for bringing uh, material to the market? So in Europe, the only mine which is really operating for specimens is the Rogerly mine, which is in England. And this mine was opened like 18 years ago or 19 years ago. And it's very small underground operation with some a little bit of open pit. It's old quarry, which uh, was their limestones were mined there. And there are hydrothermal veins with some galena and fluoride. <clears throat> and it was originally mined by English crew. Then it was purchased by California company. Carl Graeber and Jesse Fisher, then it was sold to Ian Bruce, who's owner of Crystal Classics in England. So <clears throat> this is the only operation which is really 
non-stop uh, long-term operation underground for the specimens. All other projects are either half-legal or illegal in terms of the law, or some occasional diggings. In Europe, uh, the only way you can really go and dig, it's like you go to the mountains, no one asks you, you just dig, not using heavy equipment. And to the moment when you don't make too much mess, no one asks you, of course, if it's not national park or some other protected area. If you want to do something from zero, Legally, it's almost impossible, as I said. In some places, it's possible to cooperate with the mining companies. There are big quarries or mines, and some of them allow people to go to collect. Um, of course, it's not like you just show up and say, hey, I would like to go to your mine and collect, but it's possible to arrange that. But of course, this is still occasional. The only project which I did in Europe was in northern Norway, on the Zeeland Island, which is located 400 kilometers north from Polar Circle. Um, it's very close to the <clears throat> most northern part place in Europe. Uh, <clears throat> and this island is quite difficult to reach. We got the mining claim there with all the rights to make the, let's say, preliminary research. We cannot open the mine there, but we can go there and make a research. So this project was very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> as this is an island, which is, uh, there is like five people living on this island. Uh, it's very beautiful place, but you need to use you have to go to Alta town, it's very the most northern town in uh, Europe, the bigger town. Then you take a ferry, then you take a speedboat, then you have to go from the big fjord, you have to climb 800 meters in the super area where there's no path, nothing, just reindeers and no one living there. It's beautiful but very difficult. So carry equipment was impossible, we involved many flights with helicopter, we have to bring like 2,000 liters of fuel, many uh, machineries, etc., everything by helicopter. We set up the camp. Of course, it's possible only during the summer, because in the winter it's so much north that it's all everything is frozen. And because this is 400 kilometers north from Polar Circle, you've got a day for 24 hours in August when we were digging. So pretty much midnight you can go dig because there is a sun on the sky. It's very interesting experience. So we come there for one month and uh, we use we use jackhammers, we use saws, we use some other small mining equipment and we stay there, we have to bring with us all the food, all the fuel because to buy something it's really, it's, you need three days to go to the shop just to buy bread or something. So we have to bring everything with us. We stayed there for one month on the top of this island. It was really interesting experience. For two days, we've got wind over 100 uh, kilometers per hour. So we have to keep our tents. Even we use military big tents, which are 200 kilo each. We have to keep them and one of them broke the steel elements. So we spent another day to rebuild our camp and uh, it was really beautiful. We've got many reindeers coming to visit us, but it was very, very tough experience. You know, in the night you've got zero degree, in a day you've got heavy rain or, or 30 degree in the sun. Uh, it's worth to mention we were mining the zircons then. It's a huge pegmatite vein with small lens of biotite when together with biotite and magnetites, the world's best zircons are occurring. So we were quite successful. We mined there some nice specimens. But to get, this per, to get this legally, we need to get 17 different permissions. And <clears throat> the interesting story happened because Norway is very protective about their 
their nature, etc. And everything was on the name of my friend and partner, Jan Erik Larsen, who's a Norwegian collector. Me, as a person from Poland, cannot get mining rights and all these legal rights on me. So we were there, the Jan Erik claim. And the Alta and Northern Norway is a super quiet place. Nothing is going on. And there is national TV and newspapers. They've got nothing to do. And suddenly, this group of people flying with helicopters showed up. It's like, what are they doing there? Oh, they come from Poland to destroy our national heritage. So they start to come to our camp with the helicopter filming us. Like, you know, you are digging all dirty and there is a lady with camera making interview with you. Hello, what are you doing here? It was a really mess. So... We told them, okay, we've got all the legal rights, just leave us alone. So after two days, there was a special, another helicopter coming from the Alta Commune, Alta Town, with some represent of the national park, which border is only 500 meters from our claim, and from town. And this lady came again with, um, again with press and came to us, how you are doing that? It's illegal. You don't have a right to do that. Where are your papers? And then I've got these papers with me. And I said, here is a paper and this is your signature here. So, and she was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and they literally were trying to kick us out because it became the big uh, media problem because the media yeah. was pushing the local government. Why are you allowed to do that? Uh, it was just for them, it was something super weird. So they were trying to find a way to kick us out and they found three days before we planned to quit, they, they came again by helicopter and sent, sent, told us, okay, in the 17 permissions, one of them was to change the uh, the surface of the ground a little bit and it was saying you can do that up to one meter or one half a meter and they said okay you are now on three meters this uh, permission is annulated you have to apply for new one and it was obvious we'll never get the new one so we have to close three days earlier but anyway it was successful and very interesting experience amazing just amazing and and yet, I'm sure you brought out some incredible material from that dig. We've got a few specimens. Well, very see, different Europe, huh? It's I went to stories. Greenland in November. That was interesting. Yeah. It really was. Uh, a lot of what he's saying, I experienced. Uh, they said that they want to get their tourism mineral business going in Greenland real bad, but their biggest problems themselves. Uh, European <laughs> bureaucracy. Yeah, European bureaucracy. <laughs> they want to know how the government gets their share ahead of time. And I'm like, no, it's not going to work that way. You're gonna, they're going to have to hit the market. The market's going to determine what they're worth. And then you guys can work that out. But no, they want royalties. The, the uh, Ruby company said they're 30 million in and haven't sold a single stone. Wow. And so uh -huh. I said, the, I told the Minister of Resources, this isn't going to continue forever like this. Don't, don't let them go bankrupt. They can't sell a stone. Because they want, they, want, they want royalties now. And, they don't, and the market hasn't determined what that's going to be. So oh, it's a mess. Okay. They want to do it. They got vast resources, but I don't. They're they're their own worst enemy. I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> uh, pretty upsetting sometimes. Uh, it's like we have to educate. We have to spend time educating people, and um, a lot of people just have a fear of the word mining. They they yeah. think it destroys and open pit mining, and you know they yeah. they they're not educated. They're ignorant. Right. Um, Rod. You have dug at many places. You're legendary. You are the legendary rod. Um, what's your favorite locality that you've dug? Oh, that's tough. It always is. Mm. 
maybe one of my first successes was Society Girl Mine for the pyromorphites. We had initial success and then <clears throat> unlike someone smart who might just sort of sell and get, leave one and go away, we, we sort of sank all the profits back into the operation and ended up walking away from it and going, well, there may be more, but it's going to be too expensive to find, uh -huh. you know. And that I would say that to this day, that that is a project waiting for somebody with a very deep pocket to attempt. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's British Columbia, so a lot of permitting. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that, how long ago was this? I did that in 1975. A while ago. Yeah. And nothing's been done since. Nothing significant since 1980. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's one of those tantalizing things. If you want to try and mine poor pyromorphites, <laughs> then it's there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, but it is you're going to need a deep pocket. And I kind of look at that and I go, yeah, economically, probably not going to be viable, you know? Yeah. And I would say that for an awful lot of things, yeah. you know, and, you know, this, I brag about having been to every place in Canada that ever produced a crystal, but there's a few I've missed. You know, Victoria Island has a very interesting hematite locality that I've never been to. There's scalenohedral hematites, very bright, very nice. But that's uh, really out of the way, and you have to have somebody with you at all time there because the polar bears eat people. And oh. you're, and it's, and it's foggy most of the time, so it's white on white on white, and your bum is, you know, up in the air while you're digging crystals. You're just sort of like, <laughs> very big target Wait for a, a polar bear. That place I've never got to, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, we went to Baffin Island, mine pyrites, and a civic mine for three years running back in the '80s. And, I did find that you can actually collect mineral specimens at minus 50. So. Oh my. Yeah. We, when we arrived there the first year, uh, the thermostat was at minus 50, and the vocal guy said, oh, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that was Celsius, too. I, so. I was saying, at that level, it doesn't matter. Fahrenheit and Celsius, they're yeah, both about the same. Uh, you know, or temperature was minus 18 Fahrenheit. You know, and so if you were working in the mine as we were in March, you know, minus 50 outside with air intakes and minus 18 or temperature, it was a major challenge just to stay, you know, from getting frostbite. So. It must be very rewarding, though, when you go to a museum or if you go to a collection and you see pieces that are from your dig. It must be rewarding to see them treasured by other people. No, well, it's really nice. Yeah, you know, the Smithsonian has quite a few things on display from us. Uh, the Royal Ontario Museum, of course, Canadian museums have quite a bit because uh, we sort of specialized in Canadian things, and they're kind of a bit obligated. But mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> but uh, it is nice. You know, I go the Royal Ontario Museum's new gallery is wonderful, and I think they have twenty six cases. I think we have stuff in twenty four of them. So, That's amazing. Your yeah. comment reminded me of something that uh, I only know a little bit about. The, the Canadian government has first right or first claim to some really fine 
specimens before they can be exported? Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually something that I'm kind of doing a review for Canadian cultural property right now on is the sort of the threshold price of mineral specimens. When they brought that in, they were the only country, and I think still are the only country that I'm aware of that signed on the UNESCO agreements for cultural property, and they put uh, minerals, fossils, meteorites. Mm. Now a lot of countries have meteorites. Um, some countries have fossils, um, but Canada added minerals, which I was vehemently sort of opposed to, but because I could see this uh, as a as a bit of a nightmare. And they brought it in in 1978. It's $2,000 was the threshold limit. You had to have a permit, one permit per specimen. Per specimen. Okay. Oh. Now, back then, you know, we quite frankly weren't finding a lot of $2,000 rocks, so it wasn't a big issue. But in a day like now, when you look in the rooms here, the 2000 is kind of on the low end. Averaging is kind of more in the 20,000 to 30,000, kind of maybe. And I've been trying to sort of take this in as I've been here because the paper that I'm going to present to Canadian Cultural Properties is that I think that threshold value should be 20,000 because then it's, it, it's twofold. One, it's, it's a, a more significant specimen, maybe threefold. Two, it kind of takes care of most of the mineral dealers who don't pay any attention to that legislation. I mean, we always have because we're sort of the kind of the forerunner of that crowd. But um, and then three, it it will sort of make it worth the institutions doing the paperwork. And so there is support if um, so like if I apply for a permit for a specimen, and it's refused by an expert examiner, then there is support for 50% of the money from the federal government if they have the budget in there, still in their coffers, and they usually do, uh, for a Canadian museum to say, we have the matching funds. But the paperwork is unbelievable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I pity the museum that says yes. You know, realistically for them, it needs to be more like 100 to 200,000. Because of the amount of paperwork, and you know, there's all kinds of of criteria that they have. They have what they call OSNI, which is outstanding significance and national importance. So you have to demonstrate that this specimen is so, uh, you know, uh, before you can even apply. That's a bit so, like counting angels on the head of a pin, isn't it? Well, <laughs> how, how do you define? Yeah, those it, 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 well, exactly. I mean, something that's actually small and not necessarily worth that much money could be significant from mm -hmm. a species point of view, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it's nothing that you'd sell here, but, you know? There yeah. is, I, was, I was going to just finish this thought. Uh, just a few years ago, there were some, some spectacular Sudbury spare lights that, uh, that, that came out that uh, did eventually get released, but it took two or three years uh, to get through the the review process and the paperwork before they were they were available. That's right. But yeah, when did. they did come, they were yeah, really world class. They they of course reasonably were refused export permit, so that automatically is a six month waiting period. Mm. And one one museum did sort of step up to the plate and get one, which was really good. Um, there weren't that many. I you guys have a very good one. It's one of my favorites. But yeah. one of ours too. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, we are winding down. 
and I would like to finish this with a quick story from Jeff. Um, I had been in contact with a woman whose grandson, a very young boy, had cancer. And you did something marvelous. Could you tell us briefly? Yeah, the lady contacted me and said her son, her son is terminally ill. Uh, all his poor guy, all his life, he's been fighting this, and he's ten or twelve. Oliver, we did. So I said, I, he, she said, what can you do? It's on, it's on, it's on his bucket list yes. to come and find a watermelon tourmaline. So I said, okay. He's, he loves this stuff, loves this stuff. So I said, okay. I put up on my Facebook that we're gonna have a I dig Ollie day. And so people brought rocks and people turned out, gave him rocks for their collection, the little boy. And he, I, had, I just happened to have Brian Bussey there that day. And he loved the Prospector show. And he saw Brian, and he, was, he couldn't believe it. It was like, oh, Brian, I love you. And he hugged him. And, and I guess this kid just, he was on cloud nine. He, you know, he knew who I was, and he wanted to come find out. So I told the grandma, I said, one way or another, he's going to find that watermelon tourmaline. We're, so we're going to make that happen. And it did. So he, he was the cutest little guy anyway. He had, he had to go to San Diego to Children's Hospital to have some very intensive radiation treatment. Mm -hmm. right? In fact, he went, he stayed in my cabin. And right from there, they went down to the hospital and had his treatments the next day. It was um, an incredible act of kindness and very successful. Crystal. I'm so excited that you're talking about this, Jeff, because we actually had a child come out. His name was Royal Hawk, and um, he was with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. He was... Um, Wow, he'd been fighting leukemia for about six, seven years at the time. And his mother was so amazing because when they came out there, she said when he was going through his treatments, um, he was watching prospectors. And he looked at her and he was like, I'm going to go digging one day. I'm going to go digging with Dwayne Hall, who digs the aquamarines up on the top of Mount White. And um, I thought it was so amazing that this show, that we didn't really know how much impact it was having, was having so much more impact than we expected. And we ended up letting Royal come to our claims because he couldn't make it to Dwayne's claims because they were too high and right. it was it was much too dangerous for him to get there. Uh, but we hadn't found anything for about three and a half weeks and all of a sudden he's just full of zeal and excitement and he gets in there and he starts digging this pocket. He found these incredible like needle smoky quartz that were just completely gemmy and clear and wonderful and he had such a ball. And I think you doing that and, and opening your claims, um, and I'm sure the rest of us, you know, if, if faced with that and able to do something like that, would do the same thing. To be able to do an act of kindness like that and, and show everybody, you know, geology is so important even to somebody you wouldn't expect it to be affecting. It, it's neat because I think it brings us together a lot, like very, very much so. And there's always so many memories that we can take from different digs and different pockets. And I'm sure we all have so many stories that are just never ending. There's, yeah. there's so many facets, so to speak, of mining and, and how it affects people and enriches people's lives. You're correct. Well, and, and the attitude, uh, just the excitement and the thrill and the the, uh, the the desire to do more, to live better uh, for someone who's ill like that, uh, mm -hmm. mining and, and finding these these nature's uh, treasures. It's got to be a, a very uplifting experience for 
for these folks in particular, just as it is for us. I think it put everything in perspective for you when, you know, not that... I know, here's this poor little yeah. guy, never had a chance in life, and he's so enthusiastic about it. And right. You're on his bucket list? Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, what an you honor. know? Yeah, what an honor. Well, at this point, we're going to close down this session. I want to thank all of you. Jim and I are really delighted to be able to chat with you. This is so rare during a mineral show that we have any quiet time to visit with anybody at all. So thank you again. We really appreciate it. Appreciate all of your stories and sharing them with us. Thank you. It's been fun, you guys. Thanks for inviting us. And that's going to do it for this episode of Breakfast with Minerals. We certainly hope that you enjoyed the show and that you got something worthwhile out of it. If you'd like to continue the conversation started here, we invite you to post your own comments in the Friends of Minerals Forum section under Blue Cap Productions in the Mineralogical Magazine section. Again, you can find a link to that site as well as information on other Blue Cap Production podcasts in the show notes. And remember, these shows are for you. So don't be shy about sending us ideas and topics you'd like to hear us address. Simply email us at topics at breakfastwithminerals.com. And finally consider subscribing to our podcast and you'll be automatically updated when our next episode of Breakfast with Minerals goes live. On behalf of Blue Cap Productions, The Fine Mineral Show, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC, we'd like to thank you for listening. Have a great day.